Now, I want you to all be honest with me. Have you ever got lost? Yeah, ever taken the wrong road? The wrong path? Guess who's the most guilty one, my wife or myself, for doing that? I am. <laughs> who's the one that never listens to the wife, says when you've gone in the wrong direction? I am. And uh, we, one of the other things we enjoy doing is walking. Uh, we, uh, we, in, we enjoy going to Pembrokeshire. We've done most of the Pembrokeshire coastal paths now. Uh, but there's one part of the path we had to go to, which was in, uh, on Angle. It's a part of the Pembrokeshire coast. Uh, someone told me it's very easy to find. You just go down, and all roads lead to Angle. And so I was going down there, and I came to this road. I thought, this road must lead to Angle. Dead end. So all roads do not lead to Angle. Um, I do, we like coastal path walking. Why? Because you can't get lost. Because you just walk down the path, and you turn around and walk back. We don't mind walking back the same path because uh, the scenery is always different when you're walking back. <laughs> Yesterday we were walking. We don't, our walks are never very long. They're only about eight or nine miles. Um, uh, but, uh, well, I know for some of you it might be a long time, but, uh, a long way, but for us it, it's not. In Derbyshire we used to do, you know, a lot more than that. But yesterday we were walking the coastal path in, uh, on the North Devon. Is Clovelly in Devon or Cornwall? Devon. Uh, we went to Clovelly and walked along the coastal path round and, and back round, 8.7 miles, according to my iPhone, which I didn't realise was registering how far we'd walked. Um, which, but it was the ups and the downs that kill you, I can tell you. I just warn you, if you're going to do it, the first part's fine, the second part, it is hard work. Um, but we do that because we don't get lost. But, but so often we do get lost, and we get lost in our lives, and we get lost, and I think our nation is getting lost in many, in many ways, particularly when it comes to faith and religion. I think our nation has lost its way. We, how often have we heard, all roads lead to heaven? Heard that? All roads lead to heaven. I want to tell you now that all roads do not lead to heaven. I want to tell you now, because that's what Paul is saying in this passage, all roads do not lead to heaven. Once upon a time, when I started ministry 28 years ago, um, when they said all roads lead to heaven, they were talking in terms quite often, whether you were a Methodist or a Baptist, a Presbyterian or an Anglican, whatever denomination, all roads led to heaven. You could understand that. Nowadays, that has changed dramatically. It doesn't mean that at all. It means whether you're a Buddhist, a Sikh, a Baha'i or a Hindu, you all go to heaven. But that, for me, is not what the scriptures say. It's uh, not helped along by people like the actress Halle Berry, you know the one in the Bond film wearing the orange swimsuit. Now all the men are nodding. Uh, they recognize who I'm talking about. She said, I believe in God. My problem is I don't know which one to believe. I don't know whether it's Jehovah, Buddha, or Allah. It's quite interesting she, she didn't say Jesus. Madonna says, I go to a synagogue, I, I study Hinduism, all paths lead to God. And when you've got people, dignitaries going out there telling you that, then I think you, you see why the world is losing its way. Uh, it, today it seems to be acceptable in the intellectual <coughs> circles that the more you are tolerant of others, the more you can believe in what you want to believe. And it's a matter of opinion instead of actually listening to what God is saying in his word. Uh, the great teacher and uh, theologian Michael Green uh, says that it cannot be true because there are a whole number of different religions. He says there is the occult, religions such as animism, witchcraft and some new age, 
that have to do with evil spirits. There's imperial religions about political authority, divine kings, Shinto emperors, Egyptian pharaohs, Maoism in China, Hitler, Stalin. Then there's the ascetic religions of Buddhism and Jainism, which is all about the elimination of self. Then there's the genital religion, some worship, uh, some worship of some gods in Hinduism, or the Canaanite worship. The bourgeois religions that feed on the religious instinct of the leisured classes. Christian scientists, Scientology, uh, are all about self-improvement, they're not about God. Then you've got the prophetic religions as Islam and Marxism. And then you've got revelatory religions such as Judaism and Christianity. And there are different ways to look at these religions. There's a great ancient Hindu story that tells about six blind men that came up to an elephant. And they all had different perspectives of the elephant. The first one felt the side of the elephant and said, this feels like a wall. The other felt the tusk and said, this feels like a spear. The third man felt the trunk and said, this feels like a squirming snake. Nonsense, says the fourth man, stretching his arms around one of the legs. This is like a tree trunk. The fifth man got wafted by the elephant's ear and said, even a blind man knows that this is a fan. And the sixth, grabbing the tail, assured his friends that the elephant is really simply a rope. There are those who hear, hear different people from different religions saying that they have touched God in the same way these blind men had a different perspective of the elephant. And so they conclude everyone is right because everyone can hold different parts of God. And since everyone is right, all their different faiths must lead to the same place. They must lead to heaven. And thus you get the phrase, all roads lead to heaven. But that's not what the Bible teaches. No other religion requires faith in someone who rose again. No other religion has someone who sacrificed their lives so that we might be forgiven. No one has sacrificed their life that our relationship should be restored. No other, relation, uh, no other religion talks of a relationship with the Son of God. And no other relationship... No other religion talks about a living God. And here we have Buddha is dead, Muhammad is dead, Hitler is dead, Stalin is dead, the Hindu gods are dead, only Jesus is alive. And here, centuries ago, in a city called Athens, the predominant belief was that all, go all roads led to heaven. And Paul comes into the very midst of that to tell them about a living God. The city of Athens was a very religious city. They say there were 30,000 different idols in that city. One Scott historian noted it was easier to find a god, an idol, than it was to find a man. And yet, while highly religious, they were confused which god to worship. And because they were not quite sure whether they actually had it right, they actually had a statue to the unknown god, yeah, covering all their bases. And so this unknown God statue was right in the middle. Now, before you dismiss these people as uneducated people, the people of Athens were very educated. It was the centre of learning for their day. Here, the whole idea of democracy took root. Many of the world's great early philosophers and thinkers lived here. Euripides and Plato and Socrates, amongst others. And here in uh, Athens, they had one of the greatest universities that taught philosophy and literature and science and arts and mathematics. 
It was a city dedicated to truth and dedicated to wisdom. And yet, in the midst of this uh, dedication to truth and wisdom, there was confusion. Why? Because they did not know what truth to embrace, to hang on to. So they all believed all was equal. One was no, not superior to another. And people have been like that ever since. They seem to be unable or unwilling to discover the truth of God. So religion gets relegated to a kind of personal taste and an objective reality. Kind of our taste in clothes or the colour of our houses. There's no right or wrong to it. It's, no, it's not a case whether you prefer Hinduism over Buddhism. It's a bit like whether you prefer Big Macs over uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken. If there's no God, well, he'll understand if you're not quite sure. Everyone was just trying to reach out to him in different ways. Sadly, there are Christian ministers that believe that as well. I was, uh, I was a part of my uh, work in Sheffield, was a part of a multi-faith chaplaincy team, which meant I worked in a team that had Sikhs, Hindus, Muslims, Jews, Baha'i, pagans, and, well, if you think of another, they were, they were all there as a part of this group. We, we, we got on very well. We respected each other as people. We did not agree with each other in our religions. We had a monk come amongst us to, teach, uh, to, to help us understand each other. And so he went round to each of these uh, faith leaders and said, what is the tenant of your faith? What is the basis of your faith? What is important to you? And so the Muslims spoke what was important to them. The, the Buddhists came to me and I said, well, for me, I chose John 14, 6, where Jesus said, I am the way, the life, and the truth. No one comes to the Father except through me. Following me was the Methodist minister, who said, well, actually, I don't believe that. He said, I don't even believe Jesus said that. And I had to say to him, what do you believe? He said, does it really matter? This is someone's got a doctorate in religion. And I said, well, it does. And it's quite interesting, afterwards, after we had this meeting, uh, my Muslim friends came over to me and said, Nigel, we really appreciate that you actually believe what you believe. And, uh, and we respect you for that. And when the university tried to close down the carol service because it was too Christian, the first people to stand, stamp their feet and said, how dare you, were the Muslims, who said they have a right to have a Christian service to worship their Jesus. So when you see this in the press about uh, uh, what's going on in Islam, the moderate, is, uh, the moderate Muslims, and the majority of them are, do support Christian belief in that sense, and our right to believe. We agree to differ on our beliefs. But we need to believe something. And we need to believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. That no one comes to the Father except through him. And we, we have so many problems today because we have watered down our faith and our religion that we forget about the living God who is reigning on high. The name of Buddha or Muhammad or Krishna or Shiva or Vishnu will not get you to heaven, but the name of Jesus will. And here in Acts 17... Paul is telling the Athenians the same thing. He stood up in that meeting place and he said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are religious. For I looked around and I saw all your objects of worship. 
And then I even found an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. Now, you worship something unknown, now I am going to tell you who that unknown God is. And then what, what does Paul do? He presents very simple points. There are six very simple points. He says, God is the creator of the universe. He is the ruler of the nations. He is the sustainer of life. He is the father of us all. He wants to be our saviour. And there needs to be repentance. He will come and judge the world. And it was a simple message. He wanted them to understand it. It wasn't complicated. And we need to be careful with our message that we need to understand that the message that Christ gives is simple. I read the King James uh, the first became annoyed at the uh, irrelevant ramblings of his court preacher and once shouted up to the pulpit, either make sense or come down from the pulpit. How many times you perhaps wanted to shout that out? <coughs> I know certainly in my church, uh, they did. I had, um, uh, we had a group of uh, uh, Karen people came to Sheffield. It's uh, the Karen are the refugees of Burma. They lived in the Thai camps. Uh, interesting the way they came to Sheffield, I got a phone call from the Home Office. But when someone at the other end of the phone call, when you're preparing a service, says they're from the Home Office, it really confuses you. So I thought he meant home base. And I thought, I haven't ordered anything. So I told him that. <laughs> and he said, no, the Home Office. I said, which Home Office? He said, how many Home Offices do you know? This is the one in London. And uh, then he said, I've heard about your church. Now you start panicking. <laughs> He's heard about your church. What has he heard about our church? Um, and he said that they've got a, a hundred uh, Karen people coming through a gateway program uh, into this country, and they're coming to live in Sheffield. A lot of them are Christian, some of them are Baptists. He's heard about our church. Would we make them welcome? Of course we would. And then we were sworn to secrecy. He hadn't told the Sheffield City Council that they were going to have to accommodate these people. Um, but they came, and uh, 17 of them came along to church. And uh, then it became 16, 15, 14. It went down to about seven. And I said to them, I said, why aren't you coming to church anymore? And they said, Nigel, we don't understand your sermons. And I said, well, neither do anyone else. <laughs> but they still come. And then we worked out it was a language problem. They did not understand the language. So we set up a Karen church where I, we had an interpreter and the sermons were interpreted every, uh, every Sunday. And we did that initially, then it was once every fortnight, then once every month. That church grew from 17 and is now 120 strong. Why? Because they, can, they understand the message and the message they're able to share with others. So they now, they're an independent Baptist church, they have their own now Karen pastor and they meet in another church hall. But it's about getting the message across and being clear with our message. One of the uh, things about Hans Christian Andersen was that, as a fairy tale writer, he wrote to his audience, uh, to children, and his stories have been loved over the, over the years because of the way that he wrote to them. And uh, when, just be, uh, as he was coming to the end of his life, he told the, a musician who was going to compose a march for his funeral, most people who will walk after me will be children. So make the beat time with little steps. He was thinking about his audience. He was thinking about what he can do, how he can communicate. And that's what uh, Paul was doing here. He was wanting to communicate the living God. That God calls for repentance, not for open-mindedness. People will not get into heaven by being Muslims or being Hindus or 
waving a, a Buddhist statue, but knowing Jesus. Notice the crux of Paul's argument. He's calling us to repent because there will be, he doesn't say there might be, there will be a day of judgment. A people, uh, the people in certain uh, areas of our society are fond of telling people that no one has the right to tell someone else that what they believe is wrong. It's just not nice. And Paul is declaring it's not nice not to tell them that they are wrong when there is something exciting for them to have. And judgment is coming. And we've got to be fair in telling us the uh, people that judgment is coming. And that it's not just about being open-minded. It's quite in- interesting, isn't it, that we're, we're called as, Christian, as, as members of our society, we should be open-minded about f- our religions and our faith. And yet, there's no room for open-mindedness in a chemical laboratory. Water is composed of two parts. Uh, There are there are uh, two parts hydrogen, one part oxygen. There's no deviation really from that. That's what makes it what it is. There's no room for broad-mindedness when you come to music. The skilled director will not uh, permit his uh, lead violinist to play half a note off at the wrong time. There's no room for broad-mindedness in mathematics classroom in geometry, calculus, or trigonometry, unless you are me, uh, because my maths all is awful. Um, there's no room for broad-mindedness in the athletic field. The game is played according to the rules. There is no charity you go to win. There's no room for broad-mindedness in the garage. A mechanic says the piston rings have to fit the cylinder, and there's within a hundred thousandth of an inch. That's the way it's going to be. There's no broad-mindedness. I was going to use the illustration. You've got to be very careful with this analogy, that... Uh, if you've got the speed of light being the fastest they could ever be. That's, that's, but I understand that's not true anymore. And uh, because uh, I understand neutrinos that were sent through the CERN laboratory uh, to, was it 732 kilometers, arrived a bit early uh, because they were faster than the speed of light. But, hey. but after every other serious field of knowledge, refu- uh, every, ser- every other serious field of knowledge refuses to allow for tolerance of truth. And here... Paul, in Acts 17, he said, we know what is right. And Paul says in verse 31, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof to men, to all men, by raising him from the dead. I loved a sign I saw at one of our Baptist churches. Uh, There's a sign outside that says, if I'm okay and you're okay, explain the cross. The cross makes the difference. Those who would challenge our faith, yeah, they're, they're, they're keen to get us on a sidetrack. They, they would say, oh, do you really believe that God created the world in seven days? Do you really believe there was a flood over the whole earth? Do you really believe that Moses parted the Red Sea and they, they crossed on dry ground? And they, they're happy to take us in deviations away from the truth. And Paul here isn't worried about the past. What he's worried about is what was happening with Jesus. He said... When Paul, Paul meant what he wrote, when he said, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. The only proof God seems to be concerned with is Jesus rising from the dead as a living God. And Paul wrote, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, foolishness to Gentiles, but to those to whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than a man's strength. Notice here in this passage, Paul did not win the debate. 
There was no mass of rush, rush of converts. There weren't 3,000 people, as on the day of Pentecost, all wanting to be baptized. Some scholars would say that Paul's preaching here was a failure because it was so poorly received. But I don't think Paul would have ever said that. Why? Because Paul was faithful in proclaiming Jesus to these people. And we shouldn't be afraid to share the faith that we have a few men became followers of Paul and believed. We read them, uh, Dionysus, a uh, member of uh, this great group of the Areopagus, also a woman named Demarius, and a number of others. We are told that. But no other teacher even claimed to bring God to us. No other great teacher dealt radically with human weakness. No other great teacher broke the final barrier of death. No other great teacher offers to live with his followers. Jesus is no other ordinary great teacher. He simply pays the one road to God. And we are now have that responsibility to be able to share that with others as we live out our lives and go about our faith. In the 1800s, a well-known British preacher named Alexander McLaren once got a skeptic to promise that he would attend his church for four Sundays and listen to McLaren present the basic tenets of Christianity. The skeptic was faithful, he listened intently to McLaren's sermons, and after the fourth message he became a believer. McLaren was delighted and could not resist the impulse to ask which of the four sermons brought him to his decision. The skeptic replied, your sermons, sir, were helpful, but it was not that which finally persuaded me. What changed his mind, he said, was an elderly woman which he helped on a slippery walk. He said... She looked up into my face and said, I wonder if you know my saviour, Jesus Christ. He is everything in the world to me. I would like you to know him too. How often do we say that to the people we come into contact with? My friends, we are called to live out our faith because at the end of the day, Jesus is the road that leads to God and heaven. There are different ways to approach the gospel and sharing the gospel. Hello, you sinner, repent or die is not a good approach. Now, I don't know whether you've ever read the book Adrian Plass, A Sacred Diary of Adrian Plass, 37 and 3 quarters. In that, he goes into a bookshop looking for a book on street evangelism. He came away, this is what it says, he came away with a, what looks like a really great book grudgingly excavated by the shopkeeper from the Christian gardening section, where some frightened customer must have thrust it in a hurry to escape. It's called Prayer, Principles and Practices and Prob Probable Problems for Precinct Preachers, written by a man called A.P. Lunchington, better known as Lampost Lunchington, owing to his efforts to spread the light on the pavements of his home. Sat down with Lunchington's book this evening, hoping to pick up a few tips. What an amazing book! I do not know how the mind, man finds time to eat or sleep. His life is one succession of extraordinary miracles. Everything seems to come straight out of the New Testament. In fact, the New Testament seems like an early and rather poor rehearsal for Lunchington's life. <laughs> I know perhaps we would want our life to be like that. It isn't. But our, what we're called to be is it's faithful. Faithful in our message. Faithful in the gospel to live out Jesus as the living God and allow the Holy Spirit to take over and bring people to Christ.